0: action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one. All you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the Department of Meta Human Affairs or DMA and check it out right now.
1: Your ears do not deceive you. You've just entered the Cryptid Creator Corner brought to you by your friends at Comic Book Yeti. So without further ado, let's get on to the interview. This is Brian O'Neill, your host for today's episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner. Today, I'm lucky enough to be hanging out with returning guest Steve Fox, who's been rather busy, um, to put it lightly, since we last talked uh, last June. It seems like with a focus on spiders, which we'll get to in a minute. Steve, thanks for coming back on the show.
0: Thanks for having me. Yeah, my life has been full of spiders.
1: (laughs) Well, let's get into that. All Eight Eyes is a new miniseries coming out in April with Dark Horse. Um, Before we jump into the background here, do you like spiders or hate spiders? Because most people seem to fall into one extreme or the other.
0: I really like spiders. I've always liked spiders. I have a spider tattoo on my arm, right. most painful one I've ever gotten.
1: Um, Ooh, it's a nasty spot. I, I did the same.
0: Yeah, the, oh, right up into the armpit. Really killed. Yeah. Yep. Uh, no, I like spiders. Uh, although weirdly, I'm I'm less creeped out by the bigger the spider, the less freaky I find them. Okay. Uh, something about extra small things moving around i find more unsettling but a tarantula that doesn't bother
1: okay well i'll, I'll, t- I'll test that um because i've got a <laughs> i've got a real life horror story to set the mood if you're game for one oh
0: yes always
1: okay so i had a friend many moons ago he was an exotic animal trainer he worked on like the live version of the jungle book movie all that whenever they needed live animals he was the guy so he kept exotic pets one of which were these goliath bird eating tarantulas, okay, in his house. This was in the early 90s. He bred them and he asked me if I wanted one. So I went over to his place to check these things out because he wanted to see, wanted me to see what feeding was like and how I would respond to it. I go over there, drops a full-size rat into like a hundred and twenty five gallon aquarium, which outwardly seemed like empty enough at the time. There was just like some shrubbery and you know woods e scene in the background, you know, and lightning quick jumps out this huge fucking spider wraps itself around the rat fires these fangs that are over an inch long through the bottom of the rat and venom sprays everywhere in the bottom of the aquarium then skittering out were like a hundred little bitty spiders for mealtime which mama had just set up so yet to answer the question i was no longer interested in a giant goliath <laughs> spider did we properly set the tone for all eight eyes
0: yeah, I mean you kind of nailed one of the scenes in the first issue, actually. A, a skittering of mini baby spiders. Uh see that's the part that creeped me out, the little ones. The big one I could handle. The little ones in, in volume a little more unsettling. And I think that's the largest species of spider, isn't it?
1: Yeah. 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 Sorry, as far as I I'm no I'm not an arachno what do you call arachnir? No, phobe would be bad.
0: Um, yeah. Uh arachnologist <laughs>
1: yeah, we'll go with that sure
0: arachnophile i should know for the amount of spiders i i write in various forms
1: well i actually happen to like spiders i'm the guy who like will if i can try to safely pick them up and relocate them outside if i find one in the house um quina not so much though with the arachnid amore in this particular book uh, <laughs> if i'm understanding correctly the project had its genesis in the razor blades anthology magazine that you co-created with james tinian so kind of tell me how you got from A to B with this.
0: Yeah, so James uh, James Tynan and I, we did Razorblades uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. And it's a horror anthology. We were really inspired by Taboo specifically, um, which was an anthology in the late 80s, early 90s. And uh, the genesis of that project was that when the pandemic first really kicked up, a lot of our peers were without work for a little bit. If you remember, uh, a lot of publishers were pencils down for at least like three months. Um, and we're like, Oh, you know, so many of our talented friends are not doing anything right now. Let's pay them to make some freaky horror comics and do whatever they want. And of course, you know, James and I were going to carve out space for ourselves in these, these five issues that we did. And, um, I had a short in the first issue. I had a short in the second issue. And from the start, I had been talking to Piotr Kowalski, my co-creator in all eight eyes. Um, about doing something for the magazine i've been a big fan of his for a very long time Um, he works in this kind of band dessine, like very european style with a lot of architecture a lot of background detail that you just don't see as much in western comics Uh, and i knew he'd be such a perfect fit for something that really relied on setting and like a, a sense of place a sense of time um, but I'd had this idea kicking around in various forms for a couple of years before that, because I, I lived in New York for 13 years, and a lot of the times when I needed ideas for pitches or for short stories or whatever, I would just walk around Astoria um, you know, for hours at a time sometimes. And what I was struck by were how many buildings and how many facades I would pass that Did not change year after year, but I never saw anyone go in. I never saw anyone go out. I never saw, you know, for sale signs or maintenance or anything. And it just got me thinking about kind of like abandoned spaces and what could be lurking within. (laughs) Sure. Uh, And it's such a funny road because I had pitched some version of this for a kids opportunity once that was obviously going to be a lot less gruesome. Um, I had considered a, a version of this that was a lot more fantastical. And where it all kind of came together was um, when I was eventually moving out of New York and just kind of reflecting on my decade plus that I lived there and how much the city changed. Um, Even in that amount of time, you know, I I can't say I was like in New York during its peak. (laughs) I got there in 2008, like a lot of things were already quite gentrified and, and quite changed. but. Just 2008 to 2022, there was a massive amount of change and a massive amount of culture loss, people pushed out. um, And it all just kind of came together for this idea. Uh, And I also just love creature features. Uh, I grew up with, you know, Jaws, alligator, Kodiak, like all these orca, like, you know, name an animal and it had a a giant version of it uh, in a horror movie between 1950 and 1990. (laughs) And I, I love those, and they really haven't been popular in the last 30 years for whatever reason. Um, and yeah, just kind of all combined into this. The, the version we did in Razorblades originally was going to be a two-part story, um, and Piotr's schedule just didn't work out for that. And self-publishing is, is such a bizarre adventure all its own. So by the time we got around to being able to do it, Uh, It ended up being the longest single story we ran in Razorblades. And I knew when we were doing it at the time, um, it was something of a proof of concept. You know, I wanted it to stand on its own, but I had this sense like this is probably not the final or best version of the idea, but it was what we needed to do to figure out where that was going. So, what ran in Razorblades was, uh, I think it ended up being. 16 pages 12 pages something like that um and it was kind of our first stab at this idea and after razor blades was done Piotr, um he he is a maniac he likes to stay very busy he's always working on simultaneous projects he has a lot of books coming out um he just launched an awesome book at dark horse uh with kyle stark's where monsters lie um And he was really eager to just pitch it and get it going. And we sent it off to Daniel at Dark Horse, and he went for it and we developed it from there. Uh, So the the version that you'll read from Dark Horse is not, quote, you know, canon with the short story. Okay. Um, I've compared it to like The Hellbound Heart and then Hellraiser. You know, Clive Barker did both. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think The Hellbound Heart was a pitch script, you know, it wasn't like just a proof of concept, it was its own thing um but to most people hellraiser is probably the ultimate version of that idea so that's kind of how we think of all eight eyes okay um the short was called diamond eyes and we changed the title because there's a tantric sex comic called diamond eyes that runs online <laughs> that we didn't know about until Daniel, okay Daniel i didn't know about it. that. yeah either. well free advertising for them i guess um, now i do yeah <laughs> but that came from a a deftone song. And the other reason we changed it was because uh, that song didn't exist by the time the uh, the book is set. <laughs> the song okay. came several yeah. years later. So that felt kind of uh, funny and anachronistic to me. So we ended up with All Eight Ice.
1: Okay. Well, I mean, I, I love a good creature feature. They're my favorite kind of movies, uh, horror movies. Um, this one, I mean, definitely there's a mental jump there to 1990s Arachnophobia, you know, it came mm-hmm. out when I was in high school. Um, you could have picked kind of any supersized beastie really in there, you know, you alluded to a lot. Uh, so what captivates you so much about spiders?
0: Well, the reason it originally landed on spiders was that I was fascinated by the idea of like trapdoor spiders. When I was thinking of these abandoned spaces and these weird buildings that I passed all the time, some of them with, you know, quite unique architecture that didn't fit in with anything around it. I just had this idea of like. A giant spider jumping out and grabbing you and it it really isn't any more complicated than that <laughs> like I, I think it's it, you know spiders fascinate people like you said earlier people either love or hate them um yeah. and actually what was really the deciding factor and i think they're just out of arm's reach but right before i had to to really pull the trigger on what my razor blades contribution was going to be Uh, I was walking through my neighborhood in Queens and someone was throwing out a box of spider books, like raising a pet tarantula, uh, 101 facts about tarantulas uh, on the sidewalk. And none of them were, were newer than like 1998. So I don't know if someone had had a tarantula years ago or if it was like an elementary school clearing things out. But stumbling on a box of tarantula books was really like too much of a sign. Yeah, there you go. And not long after, <laughs> I was in, this sounds fake, but uh, I was in the park uh, near my house and someone had just left this spider on the ground, okay. which, you know, yep. for, for our listeners is just a, a large tarantula toy. Um, so I was like, okay, I, I, think, I think spiders are where it's at.
1: That's, all the signs were present, so... <laughs> You know, you mentioned in the newsletter both Brad and Hassan being grossed out by spiders. So, you know, are are they shooting you DMs mad at you for giving them nightmares when you coax like, them into doing this? Oh yeah, I mean, poor.
0: So Brad Simpson is is our wonderful colorist. He does not like spiders at all. Uh, he said his kids get a real kick out of of him doing this book because it just grosses him out. And Haas is one of you know my best friends in comics, our letterer, uh, and he despises spiders. So I really had to talk him into that but it it does tickle me because uh so little content like truly bothers me um that there's there's not much that would repulse me uh except for centipedes so i couldn't have done this book if it was centipedes
1: they're horrible
0: (laughs) yeah i'm like cringy even saying the name um so yeah that's that's why it's all eight eyes and not you know ten thousand legs (laughs) makes sense
1: well, I got to pause for for Hassan for a minute there because I'm always blown away by some little piece of lettering nuance that it manages to get you know put in the pages of every single thing he touches that I've, that I've never seen before. Right? Um, that's me digressing a little bit, but you're you're lucky to be working with one of the best in the business.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I just thank my lucky stars all the time to to get to work with him on multiple projects. He's lettered some of the OGs I've done, like Rainbow Bridge and, and Party and Pray. Um, and then the other main letterer I work with is Aditya Bidikar. Um, he works on most of the books I edit. And between the two of them, like the the ways they push the lettering form and the unique touches they come up with, it's it's nice to be on such a collaborative, active, and engaged team. And with all AI is knowing that each step of the way. The, the person contributing to the book is actually like, engaged in it and adding their own touches and coming up with their own ideas. Uh, it, it's a lot of fun, and it makes it – because you know, books take years to make. Like, I mm-hmm. wrote – I finished writing All Eight Eyes you know, over a year ago. Uh, so the fact that the process is still ongoing, but each step of that process is something new and is something fun and engaged is, is what makes that like, two- to three-year commitment worth it.
1: Yeah, I mean I I really really enjoyed the the visual presentation of it. There's you kind of alluded to it earlier. It's not a, not necessarily what you see in a classically American style. You know, there's there's a lot of chop to it, um or what I'm calling chop anyway, with those really small lines that help exaggerate the proportions in this case of our arachnid antagonist, right? Um which nowhere going to be better than a city to give you that vertical room to play with, you know, to like with ambushing people there was there's one panel in that first issue that bugged me even the spider lover on the fire escape i'm sure you know the one i'm oh, talking yeah. about yeah that was a whole lot of hell no but it gave everybody <laughs> these cool opportunities to play with scale so that was
0: and that was really the other reason why piotr was like my first choice to work on this project because i knew like Creature features and this kind of horror, it's its not as in your face. And, it, and if you're someone who's not creeped out by spiders, this might not bother you. But if you are creeped out by spiders, the fact that Piotr is such a detail-oriented artist and that these spiders look so close to anatomically correct and they're placed in such a detailed, lived-in world, I think is really where a lot of the the repulsion comes from.
1: Well, let's give people at least a window into the... Bit of the story here because it centers around Ven Spencer, right? The college dropout who's partying his ass off, you know, who steps kind of unexpectedly into this apprentice role as a spider slayer, if you will. (laughs) Um, He's not exactly a hero, or certainly not yet, anyway. With the first issue that I read, you know, he's to me it was like a a less talented version of Constantine, but maybe that's like the, (laughs) the visuals translating something I'm familiar with and just predisposed to like, right? So, with with the four issues kind of giving people and painting what they can expect like is it is it a coming of age story a butter av- buddy adventure strictly like a you know a monster story is it all these things yeah you know?
0: yeah i mean so then is uh one of my favorite kinds of protagonists which is where you kind of slip out of our world into a world so close to ours that you were just invisible to um i'm not a big fantasy guy i'm not a big action horror guy Um, You know, I think there there are other versions of the story where, you know, by issue four, Vin has a sword and he's, you know, jumping around slicing spiders to death. And that's not what's going to happen here. Um, Because to me, horror is scariest when it's kind of one step removed from our world. Um, And that's very much where Vin comes in. You know, he is kind of this shitty stoner who's flunked out of school, living in New York, barely scraping by. And he's been blind to this other world. And so many people are blind to this other world. That's kind of the undercurrent of the book is that, yes, this is New York, but in any city, there are umpteen versions of the city. You know, my New York is not the same New York as a Wall Street banker, is not the same New York as someone living with homelessness for a decade. Um, So Vin is kind of our window into that world. Uh, Whereas Reynolds, the older man, um, he has already been living like that. And I I can't say too much about Reynolds because it starts to spoil kind of where the story is going in issues three and four. But um, Vin is very much the apprentice to this man who's had his eyes opened a decade prior to the book and has been living on the margins of society, doing what he can to try to hold back this threat and try to open up people's eyes. But Reynolds is also very jaded because he's tried to to open up, like, you know, say eyes, and then it starts to sound like the title of the book, but he's tried to open up uh, you know, the eyes of humanity to what's going on, and, and people don't want to see it. So Vin is kind of someone who's been forced to see it and is now at a crossroads of, do I try to go back to my life and forget about this, or do I sink deeper into this rabbit hole? So, so not, I was gonna say not too much of a coming of age, more of a uh, coming of um, depression and fear. <laughs> okay,
1: okay. Well, I was wondering if if there were there were echoes, you know, of your own own personal experience when you were in New York. I, what what brought you to New York anyway in the first place?
0: Well, so I, I went for college. Um, I okay. went to NYU, and uh, I went there in 2008. And the book is set in 2002. And part of that is because I think whenever you move to uh, kind of a hot spot, you end up feeling like you just missed why mm-hmm. you moved there. Um, oh, yeah. Because, of course, yeah, the reason I thought New York was so cool was because of what I was reading about New York in you know, 2003 up until when I went there. Uh, and it's also a city that changed so much in the wake of 9-11. Uh, so this is set you know, very much in a post-9-11 New York and there are reference to politics and things that are going on throughout the series. Um, I also just think it's interesting, you know, I, I'm 33. Uh, we're almost a quarter of a century into the 2000s. And I think we're hitting an interesting point in culture where we're looking back at the early 2000s. Uh, you know, younger kids are into it for the fashion and the music. And, um, we're just hitting that like sort of cyclical moment. Uh, so I thought it was interesting to go back to a, a point in time that's so vivid to me. Um, it left such an impact on me as a, as a younger person. Um, but New York has changed so much. You know, when I got to New York, uh, there was not a Target in Manhattan. And now there's like 15. <laughs> you know, there was one Taco Bell and it was terrifying. And, you know, now there's one every block. And it, it sounds minor when you put it like that. But when I moved there, I was kind of seeing the last remnants of a very unique city. And by the time I left, kind of just felt like suburban Michigan where I grew up as far as everything's a franchise everything's the same 10 stores uh you know all the the housing is so expensive that no one can afford to live here except for very wealthy people <laughs> so it, setting it a few years earlier than I got here was a way to assess that moment that attracted me to the city kind of uh look at that teetering point, uh, and. Get rid of cell phones for the most part, <laughs> which is always useful in horror fiction in particular. Um, you know, a lot of things start to fall apart if you have cameras in the hands of every character.
1: Yeah, I never really quite thought of that, but yeah, that makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah, it's, it, you know, it's, it's, um, you can either come up with convoluted reasons to get the cell phones out of the story or you can just set it before everyone had one. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I had a similar experience um, moving to Seattle with, uh, yeah. The, those cultural expectations, and I got there, and it was very much feeling like, oh, I just must have missed it because, like, everything is Starbucks and um North Face and none of the cool.
0: Yeah. Although, the one funny thing was by the time I was leaving New York, the Starbucks were starting to get pushed out by like hipper chains. Nice. <laughs> so, we were actually, look, I don't even know if it's nice. It's kind of its own. It's uh, at that point, it's like different apex predators uh, eating each other, and <laughs> you're still a prey animal, but. Uh yeah, it was like madcap coffee was pushing out all the uh the Starbucks location.
1: <laughs> well, did you live in Alphabet City where the kind of the beginnings of the story are set?
0: Yeah, I did for a couple of years. Um okay. and Alphabet City is one of the most striking examples, I think, of like gentrification and overdrive. And like, listen, I mean, I'm not a native New Yorker. I I moved there. Um when I lived in Alphabet City, I lived in the living room of a one-bedroom uh that was Maybe like 15 feet from one side of the apartment to the other. Uh, It was a trashy, terrible little place. But that's kind of the iconic New York experience for a lot of people. Um, And I did have to reckon with my own place as part of this gentrification wave, as part of this like outsider wave. Um, But I also don't come from like a wealthy background or anything. You know, that's why I lived in the living room (laughs) of this terrible little apartment. But if you go to Alphabet City now, you know a lot of the smaller, long-lasting stores have been replaced by boutiques that change over every year or two, and so much of the housing is like brand new luxury housing that just looks like an Apple Store. Yeah, uh, and it creates a really weird vibe. Like I, I don't know a, a more tangible way to put it. It's just weird to cross from one part of Manhattan to another where. This city used to have like such distinct neighborhoods, and even in the last 15 years, it, just the sameness has set in in a lot of areas.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's that could be applied with a pretty broad brushstroke to a lot of America now. Feeling, feeling those cultural touchstones that we were connected to as kids just kind of missing, gone.
0: Yeah, and especially in a place like you know Alphabet City, it would have had it had a reputation for many years as that edgier kind. Of, that's where Rent is set. That's where a lot of yep. people know it. Um, it was the more artsy, bohemian, more affordable, more diverse. And so to see that kind of vibe of the middle of Manhattan just slowly encroach on every other part of it. Um, so that's why a lot of All Eight Eyes is set in Alphabet City and in that area. But we crisscross the city a bit to get to enjoy different parts of of the environment. Uh, unlike the Daredevil TV show, uh, you know, none of these neighborhoods are all encompassing. It's very easy to go from Hell's Kitchen to Alphabet yeah. City. So we wanted to take advantage of the environment to an extent.
1: So when you, as an editor, you do you, you do a lot of different editing work and then writing. Do you feel like your editing hat when applied to your writing hat, if you will, makes it easier or does it make it harder? I'm very curious. Horror is one of the, I think, the hardest genres along with comedy Mm -hmm. to make sure you're just hitting the beats right. And especially with a creature feature kind of thing where you don't need a lot of this background exposition as to the whys. You know, you just sort of get people on that train of, okay, just accept how it is. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> you know, so so how do you get that buy-in? Is it is it easier as an editor to kind of kind of know where those beats are to, to get the rhythm and cadence?
0: I mean, I'd certainly like to think it helps. I I don't know that I'm like cocky or confident enough to say definitively that it helps me, but I do think, you know, in my writing process it has always been true that rewriting is kind of the crucial part of writing. Like, you get the draft out, and then you take a moment to stand back and really look at it and live with it. That's one of the nice things with all Eyes, having uh, been crafted over a longer period of time, is that I, I had the liberty to, to take a step back and really look at what was working or not working, what was missing, what needed to move around. Um, <clears throat> but I do think that... I, I tend to be someone where I think about something for a very long time, I write it in kind of a mad rush, and then I step back and put my editor hat on and try to be very impartial about my own work. Um, and I do think, compared to some of my friends, I am able to be more objective about my own work and say, like, okay, this is not working, I'm going to toss this out, I'm going to you know, get rid of this character, replace this character. And actually, one of the biggest things that changed in the course of writing All Eight Eyes was the entire uh, secondary cast was not in the original draft. So okay. in issue, issue two, um, you meet some employees of the city parks department, which give this whole other perspective on what's going on. And you know that will converge by the end of the book. But in the first draft of the series, it was Vin and Reynolds the entire time. And I just had this sinking feeling. I was like, this is not something is missing like a perspective is not here um some some ways i need to move pieces across the board are not here um and that's where dominguez and godino and the rest of the cast come in
1: so you're working with an editor and let's let's get a little bit into the dark horse here because i feel like they're doing such a fantastic job as a publisher right now we had our first annual comic book yeti ice or indie comics excellent awards and Your editor, Daniel, was my personal editor of choice, mainly because every time I read something from Dark Horse, it it was great and had his name attached to it. Right. So I know as an editor, you can appreciate those partnerships and having somebody else to kind of look over your work. So, how'd that project land there? And what's it been like to have them as a partner in publishing this?
0: It's been amazing. I mean, I've been a fan of Dark Horse most of my life. Uh, I think that horror has had its ups and downs in comics. And Dark Horse has been very committed to it throughout all of it. You know, you can go back thirty years and Dark Horse was doing stuff in the horror realm, uh, and, and to me, that's very admirable. And of course, you know, you have stuff like Hellboy, but even like Cal McDonald stuff, the the Steve Niles thing, um, you know, that left a big impact on me when I was younger. And seeing them do that, seeing them do uh, Criminal Macabre and, and all these other books, Daniel is is also, I think, like one of them preeminent working editors today. He's got a really smart eye and his editorial style is to really try to bring out the best version of the story you're trying to tell. So, if I had to break down editing into two main lanes, it would be that or oh, I you know, I like the gist of this, here's how I would do it. And and that's kind of like the two main things you can do as an editor and and when I'm editing, I also tend towards Daniel's style, which is you know, James Tynan doesn't need me to tell him how to write his book, but I can take a step back and help James write the best James book possible. Uh, and that's really what Daniel's done on All Eight Eyes. Um, not with James, obviously, but with me. <laughs> and uh, it, it's been great. I know. Yeah. Um, it's good to have a second pair of eyes. hate saying eyes. It's so easy. I know. It's good to have a second pair of eyes. He's also like supernaturally responsive. Like I'll email him and he will email back in five minutes, no matter what. <laughs> like to, oh I don't really understand if he ever stops working. Um, but no, it's just been such a positive experience. And he's worked with Piotr on other projects. Um, that's how we we ended up at Dark Horse. Is Piotr um, wanted to contact him and and hit him up? And I had met Daniel before through mutual friends. Um, I. Honestly, didn't think I had a chance of getting a project in front of him, and it all came together really smoothly. So I'm grateful for that. and We may be working on something else together soon, fingers crossed. So I'm looking forward to a continued relationship there.
1: Well, these are not the only spiders you've been playing with. Um, <laughs> I've been following the emergence of the new hero in the Marvel Universe, Webweaver. Weaver. Um, suit design is fabulous, by the way, which you yes. might expect from a fashion designer character. Um, <laughs> that was uh, i think edge of the spider verse number five and mm-hmm. now there's another short coming out in the marvel voices spider verse is that right
0: yes uh and I, i've written another thing for web weaver which hasn't been announced yet um but yeah i know i mean that was such a cool opportunity the spider office reached out to me last year because they wanted to create their first openly gay male character um all the headlines were our first gay spider character, and then all the angry Ultimate Spider-Woman fans came out. Like, yes, we, we know the distinction. There's, there's more than one. But uh, to the best of our knowledge, Web Weaver is the first gay male spider hero. Uh, Chris Anka designed the suit. Uh, he, uh, in addition to being a fantastic comic artist, he's also worked on designs for the Spider-Verse movies. Uh, so it was really cool to get his take on that. And the suit really took off. I mean, before the story itself, without like my my boyfriend's on TikTok, I can't deal with TikTok. I really don't care for social media in general. Um, But people were clinging on to just the suit and the idea of like, oh, he's a fashion designer and a a spider hero. And that was enough for a lot of people because the suit was so iconic. I was like, I, I almost, we shouldn't even publish a story. Let's just publish some art of him like swinging around. Um, and then we did the first story with Keizama, who's a fantastic artist out of Japan. They killed it. And now we're doing this new one. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited for folks to see it. The art coming in is gorgeous. Uh, Luciano Vecchio is drawing it. Um, and he's great. You know, He did the Iceman serial online. He does a million projects at Marvel and DC. He's very prolific. Uh, But it's been great to to work on this with largely queer teams to be able to bring this like authentic vibe or, you know, as authentic as we can make it (laughs) vibe to this character and also to help flesh out his world because he comes from another universe. He's got his own version of different characters. Um, I've always been a big sucker for multiversal characters and, and versions and other realities. That was so much fun for me as a younger reader. So to have the opportunity now to say, okay, well, this is his version of X, this is his version of Y, is, is a very fun sandbox to be playing.
1: Yeah, I, I just got a chance to chat with John Jennings about introducing Ghostlight a character oh, into yeah. the world with Silver Surfer. So, you know, Marvel seems to be finally injecting more diversity into the Pantheon, right? So what's it been like, you know, for you to be able to, to work on developing a, a queer character for them?
0: It's been really positive because, uh, so my editor on on both uh, WebWeaver stories so far has been Caden McGahee, and I might be butchering her last name. Um, but Caden is queer, and um, having an editor who kind of gets it has been really helpful. <laughs> like, I can write, uh, you know, I can write things and not have to explain myself to the same extent, and to know that they can pick up on some of the references I'm dropping and also help make sure those are going to communicate to the wider audience has been really positive. Um, And I, you know, when it comes to diversity in mainstream comics, it's always a contentious conversation. You know, we fought this kind of stupid culture war for the last 10 years online with some fans who really resist it. But the thing is, there's such a bevy of choice out there right now. Like if you just want to live in the nineties forever, you can't like, there's a million reprints, there are legacy series, there are, you know, books that are bringing back creators from 30 years ago. And that's great. I love that. Like, I, I'm currently reading 90s X Factor. Like, I, I read 10 issues last night. I love this stuff. It's not an either-or for me, um, but I am happy that there's more space being carved out to better reflect the world outside our window. Uh, and and my, positive, my experience has been very positive so far.
1: Good. Well, I'd also noted there that you had gone back and started is this part of your continuing I'm going back and rereading all of the X-Men books from giant size X-Men 1975?
0: Is that? Yep. So I'm up to 1994. Um, it, <laughs> There's just so many crossover. Oh my gosh. Like, it was a really smooth experience from, you know, 1970 something to about 1985, 86. Um, and now I'm just like, I read an issue. I go to comic book Herald. I read an issue. I go to comic book Herald. Like, it's just so many crossovers to try to figure out which order to read things in. Uh, there are also like weird sections of these series that are not collected anywhere, so I have to dig them up different
1: ways. Oh my god!
0: It's been uh, a fun trial and tribulation. I think I'm going to try to get to Age of Apocalypse and then pause for a little while. Um, I haven't been doing it continuous because I wouldn't be reading anything else if I were. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's great fun. And it, the thing is, every every time I get through another section it recontextualizes things i read later like i was a huge fan of the 2000s peter david x factor and now reading the 90s x factor straight through having only read chunks of it as a kid you know it puts a lot more things in perspective um it's just hard to figure out like okay i got to read cable 5 through 7 then i got to go read <laughs> this mini series and then they have an arc in avengers and then they go to x factor and It's an
1: extra task. So does this tie into the the Firestar thing? Like, is this why you've gone back and done it? Because that's one of my personal favorite characters of all time. I love Spider-Man and his amazing friends growing up. Um, I was reading that if if Scott Summers was your crush, then Firestar (laughs) was mine. You know, and I'd love for you to tell me that she's going to end up abducted by Dracula like she did in the cartoon. (laughs) I'm guessing that's probably not in the cards.
0: Well, Firestar is back in Jerry's hands. I was very grateful to get to do the X-Men annual and put a spotlight on her. And I went back and revisited a lot of her stuff um, before I wrote that. I've always loved Firestar, too. I'm really happy she's with the X-Men. I can't spoil anything that's coming up, but it, that annual is not the only focus on Firestar in the modern era. There's there's more to come for her story, and I'm excited for Jerry to tell it.
1: Woo-hoo! Great. <laughs> so, so what what attracted to you uh, about her as a character kind of because it's certainly she's an outsider from most of the X continuum.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's part of it because, uh, you know, I think one thing unique to the X-Men is that in almost every era, almost every run, there is a viewpoint character, whether that's, uh, you know, Kitty pride, Jubilee armor, a younger character Or, you know, Juggernaut, Mystique, Sabretooth, a former villain, or or, there's always kind of a character on each of the teams who is a little bit of an outsider to that world. And I think Firestar in the Krakoa era has such a unique version of that because she's not a a novice hero. She's a very experienced hero. She just hasn't logged most of those hours on Teams with an X in the title. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially when you think about Krakoa and you start to examine the sort of like a community and and nationalism and sense of belonging and well I'm a mutant so I'm here and I'm part of this you're a mutant why aren't you with us I, I just think it makes her a compelling character uh it's also you know when you take a step back and look at like the the meta conversation around her she inspired such a heated discussion because um you know, she won the election last year. We just held the new election. I know who won, but I can't say it yet. And uh because she was not traditionally an X-Men character, it brought out a lot of malice in some fans who felt like she didn't belong. However, she got the most votes. So <laughs> clearly a lot of people thought she belonged. Um, so it was just a lot of interesting material to deal with there. Um, I also just think she's great. You know, I... I loved spider-man and his amazing friends as a kid i have five or six vhs's at home of the cartoon that i watched on repeat uh weirdly like fire and heat-based powers don't get that much play in the marvel universe almost all the prominent examples of them besides johnny storm aren't around that often which i just always found funny as a kid like in simplistic kid thinking you're like okay there's ice guy why is there no fire person you know there almost never was so i think she's Just a fun, compelling perspective on Krakoa.
1: Yeah, I think, that's my own personal take, I think uh, people can get a little lazy about the storytelling because when you have people with such primal powers, then the onus is on you to craft a better story.
0: Yeah, and that's why you know in the annual I have there's kind of like two key power moments. She does something big and flashy. Yeah. Uh, I think I actually included like the Akira explosion as a you know a reference in the script when I sent it to Andrea. Uh, but then she does something very pinpointed because she doesn't just have straight up fire powers, which people don't always remember. She has microwave radiation based powers, which can be used in all sorts of ways. Powers are also so funny in the modern era because. um fans online like get really intense about it (laughs) yes they do they really really want the characters they like to be more powerful than anyone else and they want to see it in like the biggest flashiest ways possible which is not always what storytelling is about (laughs) like you can't just go out and and have a dragon ball z fight each time um but you know i had 30 pages so we had one of those and we had something else
1: well, returning to Razorblades, the collected volume one hardcover came out towards the end of 2022. Are you and James shelving it for the moment, you know, while you pursue other projects, or where is that?
0: You know, it's, it's. Uh, I don't want to say anything official. It, it is just, James and I are both as busy as we seem, yeah. <laughs> this is really the reality of it. Sure. Razorblades came at a very specific time in our lives because we were experiencing this pandemic slowdown. Uh, and then things sped up very quickly. Like we had a somewhat leisurely time making the first issue, and then the next four were intense because everyone we were working with was back to work. We were back to work. We were doing Department of Truth. We were doing everything else. Um, so while we'd really love to return to it, uh, Department of Truth is still ongoing. World Tree is launching soon, which is another image series that he's writing and I'm editing. Um, we have two more unannounced projects that we're doing together uh, on the horizon. So it's something we both feel strongly about and would like to do again, but it is an expensive and time consuming project to put together because we pay all of our contributors. Anthologies are not the biggest money makers in the world. Um, it's kind of a, in a weird way, it's a very personal project to us because we're kind of just letting people we like cut loose that doesn't make for the most commercially viable book. (laughs) If we wanted to run razor blades and we had talked about how would we do razor blades on a monthly basis. Um, And it it just is not a super feasible book. So I think it's something that when the time is right, you will see something else with razor blades on the cover. Will it be this year? Almost definitely not. we james and i together have a very packed 2023 and james and i separately have a very packed 2023
1: yeah i was gonna i mean obviously you've got all of this that we've already talked about you have a lot going on and it was also something big in the works that you've been teasing about i wouldn't be doing my job if i didn't
0: ask yeah well so i'm trying to think so all eight eyes is public knowledge um and the marvel voices story is public knowledge I've got a couple more Marvel things that haven't been announced, uh, which is very cool, including the most high-profile thing I've done there yet, so I'm excited for that. Um, The art coming in on that project has been truly mind-blowing. I have another creator-owned series that has already been written and is halfway drawn uh, with a publisher I've never worked with before, so that's coming out. Uh, I also signed an eight-book contract with First Second, which is public knowledge, but on the book market, books take years to make. So yeah. I've written three of those. I'm in the process of writing the fourth now. Um, so I'm banking thousands, literally thousands of pages that people won't read until 2025 through 2028, wow. um, which is just how the book market goes, uh, but it's also weird to, to explain to someone, like, no, I promise, <laughs> I'm working a lot. You just can't see it. Um, and then like I said, hopefully another Dark Horse thing coming. Uh so I you know, I stay pretty busy and I do a bunch of kids' books in between that, as well as editing James's books at image and editing a slate of kids' books at first second. So I'm booked.
1: Breathe. Breathe. <sighs> yes.
0: But yes. if any editors are listening, I'm wide open for work. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yes. <laughs>
1: Well, this is totally random, but it's my show show. I get to make the rules, right? So, tell me why you're so effusively excited about Chainsaw Man? Because I've had Ooh. I've had a lot of people tell me I should read this. I just haven't gotten to it yet. But people are super hype about it. So,
0: yeah. So I uh, put off reading or watching it until my boyfriend. My boyfriend's more of an anime and manga fan than I am. Um, my he's very into shonen, which is you know the usually the very action heavy aimed at like teen boys. And I don't have a lot of patience for that. Yeah, Uh, I can't do that. Yeah. He loves like My Hero Academia and stuff. And and I get it. I respect it. It's just not my thing. Yep. Uh, So the times where our tastes converge, I tend to go all in on. Uh, And so when he finally put his foot down and was like, I'm watching Chainsaw Man with or without you, I was like, okay, okay, fine. Let me go read the manga. And then I read all of it in like a week. (laughs) It's it's stunningly drawn. Um, It is... Playing with a lot of shonen tropes in a very mature way, and I love bleak storytelling. Uh, Chainsaw Man is not afraid to kill off popular characters. It's not afraid to introduce someone you think is going to be important and then cut them in half a few pages later. Um, those kind of twists I just love. Like I mean, one of my favorite authors is Dennis Cooper. Like I love Clive Barker. Like I, I'm here to have a bad time when I sit down with art. <laughs> like. <laughs> Uh, and Chainsaw Man really fulfills that Uh, and also the art is just gorgeous Uh, the the anime is really good you know I recommend that for people to get a taste it's very faithful Um, but the manga is just gorgeous it's very gory very action packed uh, and it's just ruthless like truly ruthless and um, I read ahead he's only watching the anime and I, I was really obnoxious for a week because I was just like oh my god when we get to this in the anime, you're going to lose your mind. It's like, you have to stop saying that. <laughs> like yeah, it's, yeah. it's very annoying.
1: <laughs> well, That's probably a better synopsis that sold me personally more on it than anything else I've heard. I think people are maybe just a little afraid of saying it's that bleak. Because <laughs> I, I love bleak stuff. I just finished um, the other night the, the new Suicide Squad Blaze hardcover. Oh, yeah. I saw
0: you tweet about that.
1: It's really good. I'm it's excited really to read good.
0: that. I mean, I love Aaron. I love Sai. Uh, I haven't gotten around to that one yet, but I'm I'm really excited to check that out. Uh, yeah, I mean, I just love more gut punches in in art, and especially like as I get to do more. Disclaimer that none none of this is negative, but as I get to do more like sort of like corporate IP work, I really appreciate creator owned and original storytelling even more because you don't have to ask. For permission to cut someone in half you don't have to like clear it with a sensor or you know clear it with with standards and practices and you can kill off whoever you want um and so chainsaw man was really scratching that
1: okay check it out yeah well where can people find you online these days i know twitter isn't your platform <laughs> necessarily of choice at the moment hell i think we're all over it honestly yeah uh,
0: I mean, that, that is kind of like the sad little dispatches remain there. Um, so I'm Steve underscore Fox, F O X E at Twitter. Um, also SteveFox.com. Uh, and I have a newsletter that I'm kind of like reckoning with because, uh, I, I had a conversation with Aditya about this where I do think a lot of us are using newsletters like blogs because, uh, you know, people of my age and a little older, we remember when blogs were a thing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and social media kind of killed them, uh, so I'm I'm reckoning with what that's going to look like in the future. But for now, Twitter's where I'll post news, and I keep my website very updated. So oftentimes, books are on there before they're even publicly announced.
1: Well, my last question is about the hustle. This is a segment I always do now. I ask guests for a piece of advice for the listener out there who is struggling to make it in the comics field, or a young person thinking about getting into the medium. Um, So what do you got for them? And it's been real bleak lately. Um, (laughs) You you have some inspired positivity. That would be amazing.
0: Oh, gosh. Okay. Yeah. Let me fight through the first negative thoughts I have.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We get that a lot.
0: (laughs) Like uh, marry someone with health insurance.
1: You're going to be poor. Yeah. yeah. We'll go through all those real quick. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, my real advice is to the extent that you can make what you want to see and it sounds simple but i think that especially in western comics because everything's built on these like high concept five issue series that can be shopped around for film and tv like that's all well and good and you're going to have to do some extent of that just to make ends meet but if you want to make a freaking weird psychedelic slasher or whatever that's that's what you should be putting out in the world because the industry is not financially rewarding enough it's not like it, it's such a gamble to end up on top that you should be happy with the process if that makes sense like if you find yourself unhappy with the process of making comic books and you only like the possible results it's not a business for you that I'm was kind of positive right yeah yeah i mean yeah well. <laughs>
1: Let's let's go with Steve says you do you. You do you.
0: And also the other big thing I'll say is uh, take in and enjoy inspirations that aren't other comics. Like the reason a lot of us of of my age and older love all the British invasion writers is because they were bringing a lot of stuff to the table that we had never been exposed to before. Mm -hmm. And if all you're doing is reading other comics to make your own comics, you're gonna kind of start self-recycling. So find out what else you enjoy in other parts of the world, you know, fiction, nonfiction, prose, poetry, music, whatever. And and figure out how that's influencing your art and bring that to the comic page. Because we don't need someone who just really likes Grant Morrison and wants to do Grant Morrison comic, because Grant's already doing that.
1: And doing it well, despite exactly. what Twitter says. <laughs> well, all Eight Eyes is coming out in April, and you should pre-order it. you please tell them why it's important to pre-order.
0: Comics live and die on pre-orders. Uh, comics orders are set three months before they come out, at, you know, a little less than that with final order cutoff. But that's what tells us whether or not there's an audience for the book. So as great as it is to find out on release day or catch up later, the sooner you lock in the order, the more secure we are to get to tell the story we're trying to stel- uh, tell.
1: Well, I loved it, and just folks out there, spiders aren't all bad, right? <laughs> they eat lots of insects that are far worse, and that's the best pitch I've got for spiders. <laughs> if people are asking me, though, I'd order the James Stokoe? Is that my...
0: James Stokoe, yeah. yeah. So that covered. Really killer variant artists. James killed on the first issue, Trevor Henderson, David Romero, and then Martin Simmons, my Department of Truth buddy. Uh, bringing it home. So we have some really cool variant covers coming up. Lots of spidery madness from all quarters.
1: Well, let me say for the record, though, that if you kill Possum, I'm going to be pissed at you.
0: (laughs) I will say now, full spoiler, Possum is fine. I've been a a vegan for 20 years. I'm not going to kill the dog.
1: (laughs) Good, good, good.
0: I'm not even going to tease it. Possum is never imperiled.
1: (laughs) Glad to hear that. Well, Steve, it's always a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for hanging out today.
0: Thanks so much for having me back.
1: Yeah, this is Byron O'Neill. And on behalf of all of us at Comic Book Yeti, thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time. This is Byron O'Neill, one of your hosts of the Cryptid Creator Corner, brought to you by Comic Book Yeti. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. It lets us know how we're doing and more importantly, how we can improve. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner, maybe you would enjoy our sister podcast, Into the Comics Cave. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.